John chapter 5. That is a good sign, isn't it? That I know just where to turn. So we're in the book of John, and um, I want you to imagine for a moment if someone famous walked into this room. Uh, now give me a name, someone famous. RG3. Now he wouldn't, he wouldn't walk in here. He'd like, he would like hobble in here. That's what he would do. I'm a little bitter. A little bitter. Have some compassion. So someone famous, give me a name. Who? Jim Kelly. Oh, Chip Kelly. It's like Jim Kelly. How do you even know who that guy is? Okay, another name. Someone else. Who? Oh, Johnny Manziel. Okay, we'll say, we'll use Johnny Manziel since it's like uh, relevant. And it'll make half the room mad. Let's do that. All right, so listen, shh. So imagine if, John, if Johnny Womanzel came in the room, and, and he, he came in here, and um, I would imagine that at least all the Aggie fans would, would look up and be like, take notice, like, that's Johnny Manziel, right? At least half the room would be like that. The other half would be really upset and ticked off um, at that guy. So imagine if, if he walked in this room, I would imagine that many of us would sit up and take notice that he's in the room, right? You would notice him um, more than anyone else that's in the room at the moment. And so there are certain kinds of people, for whatever reason, that we do tend to take notice of. We sit up when they walk and they go, oh, that's so-and-so. Someone famous. It could be somebody from your school even that's, that has that sort of notoriety that you sort of sit up and take notice. Shh, listen, listen. You sit up and take notice when they walk into the room, and you know they're there, right? And so, but there are other kinds of people that we ignore, right? Sometimes intentionally. I think of uh, our trip to New York City this past summer on the mission trip, and um, the, the kind of people that are very easy to ignore in New York City are the homeless people that you see everywhere. And, and for many of them, many of them have mental instability, many of them have addictions, um, many of them have physical problems that are very vis- visible. And so it's very easy to think, I'm just going to ignore that person and act like they don't exist, right? And so when you look at this, though, Jesus never does this. Jesus never does this to people. He takes notice of the people that we ignore. He takes notice of the people that, um, that we tend to look down upon. And so um, the reason he does this is because Jesus knows that every single person has been created in God's image. He made them. He created them all equally in his image. So imagine someone like Johnny Manziel walks in the room. Everyone sees him as, oh, you know, right? At least half of you guys would. But some, some of you would with that. But someone else walks into the room or someone else, you see someone else on the street and, you're, and we ignore because we don't want to be faced with whatever it is that they're facing, right? We ignore them intentionally sometimes. And the reason why is because we, we start to see people as not as made in God's image as someone else. We start to see someone like who's a celebrity as, oh, they're, they're more, they're worth more than this person, so I'm going to look at, pay more attention to them as opposed to the person who's, who's disabled, the person who um, isn't quite that notoriety. And so 
in the book of John, we've seen Jesus talk to a religious guy, Nicodemus. This guy was the religious elite. We saw him talk to a Samaritan woman who was living an immoral uh, sexual lifestyle. And today we're going to see him uh, interact with a helpless beggar. Someone in that society they look down upon, someone they would walk past and not even pay attention to. Jesus reaches out to this man. So look at John chapter 5, verse 1. And here's what verse 1 says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So in verses 2 and 3, we see there's, this, uh, there's a sheep gate next to, this, um, next to this part of Jerusalem, which is basically for sheep to pass through before they get sacrificed in the temple. So this would not be a joyous place for the sheep, would it? They're about to get sacrificed, so they would have to go through the sheep gate to the temple to get sacrificed. And there's also a pool there, uh, something that was there to wash the sheep and kind of cleanse them before they were um, sacrificed at the temple. And so this place had a pool, not like you and I would think of a pool, but a, a, a place to bathe or to wash. And um, this, would, this place attracted the lame and the blind and the paralyzed because something would happen in this pool where it would kind of bubble up sometimes, not sure why. And they thought that this pool would heal them. Whatever infirmity they had, they thought this pool would heal them. So they would jump into the water, and the idea was the first person in the bubbling waters gets healed. So this place attracted these kinds of people. And, and you can imagine that they're also there for the shade because they've got a roof over their head. And so this was kind of like their version of a fountain of youth. Now you can imagine this place would take on the look and the feel and even the smell, as you can imagine, because these people... If many are paralyzed, they can't move, that means there's going to be some um, needing to go to the bathroom, right? And no one's there to help them, right? And so it's going to take just sort of a, be a grimy place, um, like you would picture maybe a downtown square where people gather, the homeless gather, to beg for food, to beg for money um, in a major city like today. In fact, a few years ago, um, I went on a mission trip to Mexico with some of our students, and we go into this um, downtown square, and there's many people in this square like this. They would, ga- they would gather because they're looking for tourist money. They're looking for someone to give them something to eat, some, some money so they can go buy some food. And there was this man that really caught my eye because he was one of the most disabled people I've ever seen on the street begging for money. This guy was laying on one of those, um, like, boards with wheels that you, like, work on a car, underneath the car. He's laying on his back. The guy literally has no legs. He has um, maybe like a, a deformed arm and hand, and just one arm and hand is all he had. He, did, he was missing his other arm as well. So he has no limbs except for one deformed arm and hand. And he's just laying there looking up at the sky and just ringing a bell, just hoping somebody will give him something. And this man would, would find a way to sort of wheel himself out into the square, and he would find a way to... Um, get the money he needs to eat to survive. And this is kind of like the same kind of place that's, that's being described here in this passage, is that many people just gathered around trying to get well, trying to get money, trying to get food, 
because they have no other kinds of alternatives. The word Bethesda, this means house of mercy. And I think it's interesting that these people are coming to a place with that name because they're looking for mercy, right? They're looking for someone, hopefully God, hopefully this fountain of youth, to show them some kind of mercy. Now, if you look down at your Bibles or your apps, whichever you have, um, raise your hand if you see a verse 4 in your Bible. Do you see a verse 4? So Mrs. Ron Stibben has a verse 4. Anyone else? Verse 4, you got a verse 4? So everyone else, you're missing verse 4. Have you noticed this in your Bible? Um, there's a reason. I want to explain why this is the case just very briefly. Because I don't want you to walk out thinking like, oh my gosh, we can't trust the word of God. So, um, so verse 4 is missing, and here's why. Because some of the earliest Greek manuscripts didn't have this passage in it. I'll read it to you here in just a second. This passage, verse 4, says... It says, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was, in, with, with which he was afflicted. I can't speak this morning. And so we don't know for sure, like, if this was truly happening, if people were truly getting healed at this pool or if this is kind of like just a, a myth they were, they were buying into because they were so desperate. But for whatever reason, some people think that this verse 4 was added by a, by a scribe later on. And so it wasn't original, so they just took it out and did not include it in the Bible that you have today. Okay? That's why it will have a note saying that this is where, where this verse came from. But whatever reason, all we know is that people are being drawn to this pool. And I would say you could probably see it both ways, right? I mean, if no one's ever getting healed at this pool then why would they all be coming there all the time, right? It could be that. It might really truly be happy, happening in a miraculous way. Or it might just be these people are so desperate, they'll believe anything and do anything to try to get healed. And so it could be one of those things. Either way, um, this man that we're about to meet is at this pool for this very reason. Look at verse 5. It says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So this man has been there for 38 years. I'm 36 years old. And so um, in that day, many people did not live beyond the age that I'm currently at, 36. Average age was much lower than today. So this man's been an invalid for more years than many people lived back in that day. And we don't know if this man was born this way or if he had an accident causing his paralysis, but he's in this state for 38 years. And can you imagine laying there on a mat for 38 years? You've got like bed sores from laying there for so long. You can't go to the bathroom somewhere else. You have to go right there. You can imagine just the, the torment this guy has been in for pretty much all of his life. And there he is. Then it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus knows this man's situation. Just like he knew Nicodemus' situation, just like he knew the Samaritan woman's situation, and just like he knows your situation. I think it's comforting for us to know that Jesus knows exactly 
what your condition is. Jesus knows exactly what you are going through. I know for us, it's hard for us to imagine that there is a God that we worship that knows you that well. It's hard for us to imagine that, that there is a God who, with, with the billions of people on the earth that he knows you. He knows your condition and your situation. He knows your family situation. He knows your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. That is the God that we worship. And this is the God this man is about to encounter because Jesus knows this man better than he knows himself. And so he asked this man a question. He says, do you want to be healed? Now, this might sound like a really strange question, right? I mean, why would you ask a man who's trying to, like, nudge his way over into this pool to be healed? Why would you ask this man, do you want to be healed? This does not make a lot of sense, does it? And I think here's why Jesus asks him this question. Because there are some people who like to be the victim. There are some people who their life is about being a victim. They're used to that, so that's all they've ever known. And so they're okay with continuing to be the victim, right? We all, we all know people like this, do we not? And for some people, if, even if someone gave them the chance to be healed, transformed, to, um, to change, that person still may not take you up on the offer because they kind of like their victim status, right? Because let's admit, there's, there's benefits to being the victim sometimes, right? There are. Um, people do things for you. You're kind of always a center of attention. People are always trying to do things for you and to help you. And, and some people like that place. They like being in that place of, of being the victim. You know, I had, this, uh, I had this uncle who lives on the East Coast, and I've mentioned this before, I think, but I, I don't like to talk about family, but I think I have to, at times, just say what I've seen throughout my life. And um, so my mom's brother, my mom is like one of the most um, just hardworking people I've ever seen in my life, right? But her little brother is the complete opposite. In fact, she tells me stories of of back when she was growing up when her dad would make her work on the farm, like they had a farm, like a real farm, and, uh, and my uncle would be like, uh, can I go out and play? And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know. And she's the one having to work, and he's the one just gets to kind of um, do whatever he wants to do. And so in high school, he started doing some drugs, smoking pot, doing the whole thing, partying. Um, he leaves to go to New Orleans, which is not a good town to go visit if you have a party issue, right? And so... Um, he goes to New Orleans to go uh, just find himself, right, and uh, starts working on oil rigs out in the Gulf, um, meets a woman. They end up getting married. They start having children. Um, he decides that he wants to come back to where we're from on the East Coast to work on the farm, right, and manage the farm that my grandfather had. And so over time, th this guy had never shown any ounce of responsibility throughout his life. So my grandfather lets him come in and lets him take over the management aspect of this farm that he owns. And within like 15 years, the whole thing is just like bankrupt, like in debt. Not just bankrupt, but like in debt like a half a million dollars, which is not good, right? And so this, my uncle was, we found out my uncle was like paying people to work on the farm. Like he was paying them like in marijuana. This is a true story. Like, we, we found bags of this stuff, like, in the barns. I found a bong one time when I was in the barn. Like, what is this? This smells funny, you know? And, uh, and so this is my uncle that I basically saw destroy his life. 
And he would also do things like where he would, he would buy cars and, and say, I'm going to fix them up one day. I'm going to buy that car. He had 20 cars at one point. They were all junk cars in front of his house. And he would just waste money and spend money and just never save and never prepare. And if you, if you talk to him now, he's in his 60s now, still in debt, still bankrupt, still probably smoking, drinking, drugs, the whole deal. And if you see his life now, you just get sad. You just go, man, like your life has just been destroyed by this stuff. But one thing that's true about him is that he always plays the victim card. He always plays that card. If you ask him any question like, hey, so how's, how's life? It's like, oh, my back hurts and my, you know, this hurts and that hurts and all these health problems. I'm like, man, you know, it's just, that's, that's sad, but I can't imagine why that is, right? And just always playing the victim card because this kind of person gets people to feel sorry for them so that they can always play that kind of card. Mark Driscoll once said, every person wants things to change, but they don't want to change. This is the kind of person who, they always want their circumstances to change because everything bad about their life is outside of themselves in their mind. Everything bad about their life is about like what someone else did to me, what, something, what, what happened to me. And so this is the victimhood mentality. But the question is, do they want to change? And before we start to judge this guy and, and think that he's being a victim, he's been there for a long time, and I, I don't know his situation, what caused the situation. But Jesus asked him this question, I think, for a reason. Because I think the same is true of us spiritually, right? He asked the man, do you want to be healed? And I think we can say about us, I can, I can ask the question of you spiritually, do you want Jesus to change you? Because before you judge this guy for maybe playing the victim card or not wanting to change, not let someone heal him, um, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we want Jesus to change us? Do we want Christ to transform us? Do you want healing from Jesus? Because some people are so used to darkness that they don't want to see the light. Some people are so used to their place of, of sin and enslavery, enslavement to sin that they don't want Christ to change them because there's an aspect of sin that's comfortable, right? There's an aspect of our life as it is where we think that I want it to always be this way so I can play the victim card. This is a place of comfort. This is a place where I want to stay. Some people are so used to slavery that they don't want freedom. In fact, there was a kid, um, I worked at a church uh, a few years ago, and there was a kid that was um, in my youth group, and his name was Chris. And this kid was uh, um, a pretty regular attender of our church, and, and he would come almost every week. And he started going off into the party, the party realm for a while. He had just gotten his license. And so one day, he and his friend... And he was, this is a friend that he actually would bring to church occasionally. He and his friend are uh, speeding down this road, and Chris is the driver, and his friend's on the passenger side. And it's nighttime. They've been drinking. And uh, Chris is about, I think, 16 at the time. And they hit something going like 80 miles an hour. And this car is basically cut in half. And his friend dies instantly. And I went to the funeral, and it was obviously a very, very, very sad uh, situation. But Chris learned something from that, and he, um, he went off into a, uh, like a boarding school, and, and he started kind of getting his life put back together again. 
And, um, but then after a while, he got into drugs again and ends up going to jail. And now he's out of high school and now he's in jail. And I'd heard about this from a distance. I hadn't talked to him in a long time. But I saw him after he got out of jail and I saw him, um, he finally had turned his life back over to Christ. And I said, um, I saw him one day and I said, Chris, what's it like being in jail and then coming back out and living in freedom again? He said, honestly, he goes, it was really scary. He said, it's scary because you're so used to being in prison. You're so used to being in this place where everything is done for you, everything is set up for you, that now you've got to figure out what you're going to do, what your job is going to be, where you're going to live, like how you're going to be. And he goes, honestly, I was more scared about coming out of prison than I was about going into prison. And I think the same is true for us spiritually sometimes, where we are we are more scared about being transformed by Jesus, being healed by Jesus, than we are about the sin that we're enslaved to. We're more frightened by freedom than we are by slavery. And so is this you spiritually? I mean, Jesus Christ offers you freedom. He offers you healing. Are you someone that wants that? Do you want him to change you? Because some of you in the room, listen, You see Jesus as like just a good luck charm. You see him as just a, he's there to kind of help you out, make your life more successful, but do you really want to be transformed by him? Do you want want him to change you? Set you free from the stuff that you're involved in. Look at uh, verse seven. It says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. So this man doesn't know who Jesus is, uh, but he's asking Christ, like, can you please help me into the water, because someone always beats me to it. And so here we see Jesus, I think this is really profound, instead of Jesus saying, okay, I'll help you into the water, so the water can heal you, he says, I'll just heal you. I'll heal you. If you recall, last week we talked about the Samaritan woman. Jesus said about himself, he said, I am the living water, right? And it's like he's saying to this guy, I am the healing water. I am that water you're looking for. I am the healing water. And so he just heals the guy on the spot. And so instead of, uh, instead of this guy turning to Jesus and thanking him, we're going to see in a little bit how this guy just kind of goes on and, and uh, he calls us sir with the Pharisees in just a little bit. But the question, this story raises a question. Why doesn't Jesus heal everyone at this pool? I mean, he could, right? Why doesn't Christ just heal everyone there who's in need? And here's a question. I can't answer that question. I don't know why Christ chooses to heal some and chooses not to heal other people. But what I do know is that when Jesus does heal, it's an act of his mercy. And that's it. We cannot go through life thinking that God owes us anything. I mean, because if if we're believers, he's going to ultimately heal us anyway. It may not be on this earth, but it might be after we leave this earth. And so we can answer those questions, but we have to have faith and trust that God's sovereign, knowing that if, if he chooses to heal us, if we have some kind of an affliction, it's because of his mercy he chooses that. It's not, it's not owed to us. He doesn't owe us that. And so I want you to go ahead and do uh, questions one through four at your tables. Go ahead and discuss questions one through four for a few minutes.
All right, let's look down at uh, verse 10. Look at verse 10. Now, here's where it gets interesting because the Pharisees enter into the picture. The Jews enter into the picture. So what you're going to see in the, in the Gospels is um, generally uh, several different people groups. You're going to see uh, the disciples. You're going to see Jesus, of course. You're going to see the people that Jesus interacts with. But as a side, um, as a side note, you're always going to see the Pharisees or the Jews or the legalists that always seem to pop up in these stories many times. Look at verse 10. Now that day, so the day Christ healed, was the Sabbath, meaning it was Saturday. So Saturday was their, like their Sunday, right? And uh, so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. So this man has been crippled for 38 years, and these men had to know who this guy was. They had to know. He's the guy who lays down the next to the pool. He's the crippled guy. They had to know who he was. Now imagine this. He's been there for 38 years, or been crippled for 38 years, and the first thing they can say to him when they see him walking and carrying his mat is, you know it's against the rules to carry your mat on the Sabbath. That's their first sentence to him. It's not, oh my gosh, look at this guy is walking. It's not that. It's, you know you're breaking a law by carrying your mat on the Sabbath. Because in Exodus chapter 20, there was this law that God, one of the Ten Commandments was, what? It was to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right? Here's what it says in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. It says, six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter. So you can never say like, son, go take out the trash, right? I can't work because I'm, you know, an adult. You're my son. You've got to work. So the, the, the rule applied to the whole family. Your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock. So you couldn't even make your ox, like, pull a plow, right? You couldn't even make your, your, your animals work for you on the Sabbath. Or the sojourner who was within your gates. So no one was allowed to work, and here's the reason why. This was not meant to be burdensome. They weren't supposed to overthink this, okay? This was not meant to be a burden. It was meant to just let them have a Sabbath so they can rest and they can Set aside that one day to recognize who God is and who truly gives them their provision. That's what it's for, right? But here's what happens, though. This law raises a question. It's how do you define work? Well, if God says we can't work that one day of the week, how do we define what work is? So what the Jews did, over time they added what are called what I call fences to the law. So if you have God's law, which is in the middle here, and it's remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's the law. That's what God says. But then they would add fences. These are things that they would put in place, human tradition, human laws, human rules, to make sure that they don't violate the law, right? That's what they would do. I call them fences. So they're like fences to protect them from violating the law of remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. So they called this oral tradition, or they called this adding to the law, they called it the Mishnah. 
say Mishnah. Mishnah. There you go. Making sure you're awake. So here's what happened. The Mishnah contained 24 chapters just on work. These are the rules that they wrote out for themselves. 39 categories of banned activities, right? So these people, they love themselves some rules, right? Here's some examples of what some of the rules were. You could not walk more than 1,000 yards from home on the Sabbath, so they'd have to sort out their food situation before the Sabbath, right? So you can't walk more than 1,000 yards on the Sabbath. Women could not look into a mirror on the Sabbath because they might see a gray hair and want to pull it out, and that would be work. Yes. You could not tie or untie a knot that required two hands. So one hand's perfectly acceptable, but not two, because that works up a sweat, right? And if you recall, listen, animals can't work either, so if your chicken lays an egg on the Sabbath, you can only eat the egg if you decide to kill the chicken the next day because he has worked on the Sabbath and he should be punished. True story. So today it's eggs and tomorrow it's chicken. Also, you could not, listen, you could not wear... You could not wear artificial teeth or a wooden leg on the Sabbath. I was unaware they had dentures back then. Were you? I mean, maybe wooden teeth, I'm thinking. I don't know what they'd be made of, but camel teeth? I don't know. Um, Listen, you could not carry, you could not even carry a needle, like, in your robe. That's called carrying something. You can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't carry a needle in your rebel on the Sabbath. And then lastly, you cannot clip your toenails or fingernails on the Sabbath. That is against the rules. So ladies, no manicures, pedicures on the Sabbath is what they would say. So listen, listen. Shh, shh. But instead of being totally floored, this guy is healed. They're going to lecture this guy about him picking up his mat on the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath is not meant to be a day of legalism, but a day of joy and rest. It was, not meant to, it was meant to be a blessing and not a burden to the people. But this is exactly what happens. Listen, when people take Scripture and they add to it. When you add human law and human tradition to Scripture, this is what you end up with, legalism. And you basically are tempting people to break all your rules, right? In fact, um, I think there are some ways that we do the same thing in our culture, right? I was actually in, uh, I was in line a couple years ago at Starbucks about to get a drink, and there was a guy that um, I knew from this church that um, was in line with me, and there's a woman in front of us who's got like tattoos everywhere, right? And he looks at her, then he looks at me, and he says, he goes, yeah, I imagine that, uh, you know, Jesus wouldn't be too thrilled with her and her tattoos. What do you think? And I'm kind of going, you're talking to the wrong guy here, man. <laughs> I said, I have no problem with tattoos. And he goes, really? And I go, he's like, what about that verse way back in? I'm like, that's not, you're taking it out of context, man. That's not even accurate. And, uh, and so he's lecturing me, and I can, I can tell that she can overhear what we're saying. And, um, and he's, he's judging this woman for having some tattoos. And I'm thinking, 
Well, if she walks into our church looking like she looks right now, I would imagine that some people would look at her and condemn her and think, oh, how could she walk in here like that, right? And so what have we done? We have added rules to God's law. We've added our own traditions, our own rules to God's law. Would someone look at that person and condemn her for something that God doesn't condemn her for? Now, I'm not talking about sin here. I'm not talking about things that God does say, yes, this is sinful. We can have a conversation about it. I'm, I'm, I'm discussing things that are not sinful. They're not black and white sin. They're things that are like human tradition added to the scriptures that we try to impose and enforce on people. And we do the same thing in our own ways today. Look at verse 14. It says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So not only are the Jews persecuting this man for carrying his mat, but now they've turned their attention to Jesus and said, you know, how dare you heal on the Sabbath? I mean, can you imagine that conversation? Like, you're going to lecture Jesus. I mean, a guy heals someone. You're like, healing is against the law on the Sabbath. Really? There's a, there's a rule for that? Assuming someone can heal someone else? And so they're now turning towards Jesus. If you notice about Christ, he tends to heal people on the Sabbath, I think, for a reason. Because he's trying to mess with these people, trying to mess with the legalists of his day. And then Jesus says, Yes, I'm working on the Sabbath. I'm doing my Father's work. So Jesus is basically saying, like, yeah, I'm working. If you want to call healing work, then I'm working. I'm doing the kind of work that God would want me to do, my Father would want me to do, right? Look at verse 18. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So can you imagine this for a moment? Jesus heals a guy, and they want to kill him for it. I mean, if your anger leads to wanting to murder people, there's a chance that you might be in the wrong, right? Just going to say, there's a chance that you might be in the wrong on that equation, right? Like Jesus does something good, and they're like, you know what? This Jesus guy is very bad. He's a bad man. He's healing people on the Sabbath. Let's kill him. Wait. We might be bad, right? We want to kill someone who's healing someone else, someone who's doing good. And so after all of this craziness, Jesus gives them an impassioned speech. I want to skip to the very end of that speech. Look at verse 28, 29, where Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I want to be really clear that um, Jesus is not saying this is a works-based salvation. He's not saying if you've done some bad things, you're saved. If you've been evil, then you're not saved because that would have canceled out Paul's salvation, right? Right? He kind of did some, some, some persecuting type things to Christians. But what he's saying, I think, here is that um, good works function as an evidence that someone's truly a believer, 
And if someone's life isn't changed, it might be because they haven't met Jesus yet. And so I think he's applying this to the good works thing, the bad works, the evil works thing, that it's, you're not saved by your works, but it's like your, your good works are going to be on display if you're truly a believer. If you've truly been changed by Jesus, you're going to have something that has changed in your life. And so after Christ says this, um, what I want you to get from this part of it is, is that um, there is a judgment that's going to come. There is going to be a God that you have to stand before and account for your life. And Jesus is saying this, right? Jesus is saying this. And, and so what we see here is that um, in this story, this man experienced, experienced a miracle. He saw God work in his life in a miraculous way. But we don't really see any evidence this man put his faith and trust in Christ. I've read some commentators this week. Most of them said, we, we're not sure this guy was even a believer, but God did some work in his life. God performed a miracle in his life. But we see no evidence of his salvation in this story. We see no evidence of repentance and belief and turning to Christ for salvation. But Christ still chose to do a work in his life. And here's what I want you to get from this. Listen, look at me, listen. You may have experienced the work of God in some aspect of your life. You may have experienced maybe... Um, you prayed for something, and God, in his common grace, like he, he let you have a certain job you wanted, or he, let you, he worked in your life in some way, and you, and you saw that as like, oh, God's hand is upon me, God's favor is upon me. And it might have been God working and bringing about those things in your life, but here's the question. Have you repented? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Have you repented and turned to him for salvation? Because if you have not, you can't just look at, the circumstances of life and say, well, God improved this aspect of my life, therefore I'm a believer because he does that for a lot of people. It's called his common grace. He lets even unbelievers experience his common grace sometimes and, and bringing about work in their life in some aspects. But the question is, don't let that think, just because that thing happened, that that makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you turn to Jesus, and you repent, and you put your faith and trust in him. And that's the question that you really have to wrestle with, because when you are confronted with the truth about Jesus, will you turn to him and repent and put your faith and trust in him that leads to a changed life? Or will you just thank him for his blessings and then go on with your life as it currently is? Go ahead and discuss your last questions at your tables.